Is aromatherapy scientifically based? Welcome to the ReachMD Book Club. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. Rachel Hers. Dr. Hers is recognized as the world's leading expert on the psychology of smell. She is a visiting professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Human Behavior at Brown University's Medical School and the author of a new book, The Scent of Desire. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Leslie. It's great to be here. Dr. Herz, I thought aromatherapy was kind of a new age, uh, you know, invention of our sort of culture. But from your book, I learned that it's not. Can you tell us about the history of aromatherapy? Sure. Well, aromatherapy actually, in its current incarnation, dates back to the 1820s or so in France, when a certain chemist named Maurice Gatfoise was experimenting with something in his laboratory and experienced a bit of an explosion and for some reason or other had some lavender oil nearby and poured it on his hand and was stunned at the degree to which his hand recovered from the burn. And that became the sort of beginnings of, in our modern culture, awareness of using scented chemicals in a medicinal sort of way. And there's a long history well, well, well before this. Probably the, the earliest medicine is based on the same kind of concept where aromatic plants were used to be ingested and to cure various things or rubbed on the skin. In fact, probably the first form of aromatherapy was as an insect repellent. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the way that it has been turned into kind of a new agey idea is extrapolating from the medicinal. So this isn't about ingesting things or rubbing them on your skin, but rather just inhaling them. And that as a function of inhaling them, our moods and even our physiological states can be altered. Now, from the basic sort of aromatherapy level, there's a lot of, I would say, erroneous information out there. I mean, if you look at an aromatherapy textbook, you can see any given aromatic plant can do anything from, you know, curing toothache to making you sleep better. And some of them even have contrary effects. I think juniper oil is said to be both a sedative and an aphrodisiac. (laughs) So you can see that there's a lot of sort of spectrum of the claims that are given to certain specific aromatic plants. But the idea that specific aromas can have influences on our mood and by extrapolation, feelings of well-being and, and also by secondary connection, our own physiology is in fact scientifically founded through the level of this association that I started to talk about before in that as a function of how we have learned the meaning of a particular chemical and because our sense of smell is so immediately connected to our experience of emotion, the first thing that happens when we smell something, if we already have an association to it, is we feel something. So let's say there's a smell that you find extremely energizing. Let's just say it's peppermint because that's certainly one that in our culture we have learned in that way. And when you smell peppermint, you feel energized. So it's sort of almost an immediate feeling that you get from smelling it. Well, if you had never smelled peppermint before and if you had never learned it, I mean, wintergreen is a mint, so it's certainly within that same family. And if you had learned it in a very different way, it would have a very different meaning to you. It would not have the kind of mood effect that it could have. And in our culture, the mood effect is positive and energizing, and therefore you feel positive and energized. And because our physiology is directly connected to our mind, you know, I don't need to tell you how mental states affect our physiological functioning. You can see heightened heart rate, increased galvanic skin responses, increased breathing rates, et cetera, et cetera, as a function of feeling, let's say, energized and invigorated. So 
when experiments have looked at the effects of particular chemicals that are aromatic on mood and physiology, what they're tracking is the association of a particular smell to a type of a mood state and then the secondary sequelae of that from a physiological perspective. But the key here is that it's association. It is not pharmacology. So Mm -hmm. smells are not drugs. They will not have automatic effects on an individual without there being a prior history to it. And if you are an individual who, for whatever reasons, doesn't have the association that most other people in the culture do, or you don't come from that culture, then the predicted response would not be there. Makes sense. And just as you're speaking about wintergreen, my association to wintergreen is Howard Johnson's. Because when yeah. I was a kid, we used to go on car trips and stay at Howard Johnson's, and I had the best wintergreen mints. Really? So when I smell wintergreen, I think of vacation and summer and you know great uh, stuff. So interesting how we all have our own personal stories with that. Well, bringing up personal stories is a great illustration for me to be able to tell you about a story of a woman I once met who told me that she hated the smell of roses because the first time she ever smelled rose was at her mother's funeral. So this ties in so well with how our own individual experience, though it may not be the same as the culture, is going to dictate how we respond to a given sense. So there's a lot of individuality when it comes to smell and certainly a huge amount of cultural differences, which are probably best seen in cuisine. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Rachel Hers, author of The Scent of Desire. We are discussing smell's role in therapy. Now, Freud had some interesting ideas about smell, didn't he? Yes. (laughs) Well, Freud, I don't need to tell a clinical audience this, but you all know the sort of history of his concept of neuroses, where that these were these repressed conflicts that his patients had, and he believed they were primarily sexual in nature, and that when he was able to uncover the sexual repression, then the person would no longer have the neurotic behavior or issue that they previously had. And he thought that the sense of smell was very much connected to sexuality, And as a function of that, we have sort of the idea, basically Freud brought into our culture that smell and sexuality are highly linked. Now, his idea about this came from, I think, his basic biological training, but he became friends with someone named Wilhelm Fleece, who was an ortholaryngologist, and Fleece was really obsessed with this notion between scent and sexuality. In fact, he thought that the nose was a secondary sex organ and that we had somehow, you know, we came from snuffling along the ground to standing upright, but that somehow our noses were still highly connected to our sexuality. So much so, and because he was an ortholaryngologist and a surgeon, that he told Freud that what Freud should do was recommend that his patients with neuroses have nasal surgery to try to cure their neuroses. So forget about the couch, just come into the operating theater and we'll, you know, do something to your nose and you'll no longer have these issues. Well, not to mention that this is obviously 100% wrong. Fleece conducted one such surgery on a woman named Emma Eckstein, who basically, if we were to look at her symptoms today, had PMS and removed her turbinate bones, which are the bones that give our nose their structure, Mm. and so basically destroyed her nose entirely. And also, because he botched up this operation so badly, a second surgeon had to be called in because he ended up leaving some gauze in there and doing sorts of other things. And when the second surgeon came in and removed the gauze, she almost bled to death, and then she developed this severe infection and almost died as a function of that. And in the end, she survived and was okay, but she was left permanently disfigured and anosmic. So this was obviously, you know, the very worst outcome possible from the belief that the nose and 
neuroses are in any way linked, Freud stopped considering this to be a mode of treatment for his patients at that point, but he actually still remained friends with Fleece until much, much later when there were some accusations about plagiarism, and that's when he severed his relationship. But Freud backed away from the nasal surgery after this disastrous experience. In your book, you also talk about how certain companies, especially in Japan, have tried to use scent as a way to improve workers' productivity. Right. Now, this is connected again to the aromatherapy idea that certain aromas are going to enhance invigoration, mental clarity, and so forth. And companies in Japan have tried to use certain aromas, particularly that are relevant for their culture, to improve concentration, performance, and so on. The problem with using this, and they have worked temporarily, and the thing is that there's two issues. One is if you came into work one day and you work in an assembly line in a factory and suddenly you came in one day and everything had been painted and there were new lights and new furniture, you'd feel happy and more motivated to work because things had been changed. They'd sort of been improved, as it were. But shortly thereafter, you know, the new improvement is the old thing, and so you're not going to be as interested in it anymore. It's going to have less of an effect on productivity from that level. So at one level, pumping in aromas was seen as a kind of a positive gesture and improving the general environment from just an experiential level. So it had a motivating influence at that level alone. Now, in addition to the fact that once it's done, it becomes less novel and less interesting, our olfactory system also unfortunately adapts to odors that they're constantly exposed to very quickly. So after about 20 minutes of being in the factory with this scent of, let's say, lemon in the air, you are no longer going to be able to perceive the lemon scent. You can walk out of the factory for a few minutes and walk back in, and then you'll be able to smell the lemon again. And what's happening in this particular case is actually your receptors are saturated with chemical, and the receptors on the cell surface go inside the cell itself. So there's literally no receptors on the surface, so there's no means of actually detecting the scent. And then after a while of the recycling of that receptor, you will then get the receptor on the surface again, but you need to go out of the smell environment for that to happen because our sense of smell is basically a change detector. Something new, detect, detect, it you know, becomes old relatively quickly, no need to detect anymore. But something very interesting happens also when we're exposed to chemicals for long stretches of time, like in our home or in our work environments. And in this case, what happens is that you can't leave for five minutes and walk back in and be able to smell it again. You have to go away from it for at least two weeks before you can smell two it again. Weeks. This is why people often notice that when they go away for vacation and come back to their house, they think their house smells funny. Mm. <laughs> well, their house always smelled like that. They just couldn't smell it before because they had become habituated to it. And we don't really understand from a physiological perspective, how habituation is working because the receptor alone, it should be recycling and you should be able to smell it. So why is it that we can't smell a smell that we've just walked out of for five minutes and because we've been around it for so long? And one of the explanations is, is potentially because we're around it so long, it actually is capable of getting into our bloodstream and we're getting sort of constant adaptation because the chemical is in our bloodstream and then affecting our olfactory receptors in this way. But that hasn't really been determined at a physiological level. So there haven't been studies that have verified that this is the explanation. And in fact, one of the reasons why aromatherapy is not given pharmacological cred is because there is no 
availability of detection of the chemical, let's say, lavender in your bloodstream that's at a physiologically viable level, so that that would be the reason why, from a pharmacological perspective, a scent would be doing something. So the idea is that you'd have to be inhaling quite a lot of this particular chemical for a long period of time for the potential even for it to get into your bloodstream at a level where it could be producing this constant adaptation, which is maybe what's going on in the case of the factory that has an environment or your home that has a scent environment to it. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you, Leslie. We've been discussing therapy and smell with our guest, Dr. Rachel Hers, the author of The Scent of Desire. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the ReachMD Book Club on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments, so please visit us at reachmd.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening.